Next week is spring break, so don't come. We won't be here. But enjoy a wonderful week off, and then we'll be back again the first week of April. So it's hard to believe it's April, just around the corner, isn't it? So one of the things that we, that Paul talks about as we launch into this lesson tonight is challenging us to be imitators of God. And so when I think about imitators, one of the first thoughts that I had was impersonators, mimics. Can you think of some of the great impersonators or mimics of our day? People like Rich Little. Anybody remember Rich Little back in the day? We, we find impersonators so funny because they study so carefully someone's personality and then they're able to mimic it in such a way that in just a nanosecond, you recognize who that person is. Well, I've, I ran across a new guy on the scene now, a new kind of impersonator. And so take a look at this and notice the very distinct mannerisms that he picks up on. All right. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Oh, hey. Oh, is this, oh, I thought you were... Hey, where are you? Come on. You know, creatively, I... Um, okay, well... No, 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 no. Uh... What's going on here? Table read for Cool Runnings 2? Wow. Damn it. Oh, God. And, uh... Sorry. I... I... Hold on. I'm trying. What is? Oh, hold on. Oh, oh. No, didn't mean to. Ooh. No, you're probably all right. Representative. Operator. Representative. Dude. Yeah, just thing, like, like. You have this, this force that's everywhere. I don't mean to be hyperbolic or nothing, but I mean, I feel like... Wow. Magic. It's just amazing how, in just a split second, the voice intonation, the mannerisms, the facial expressions can draw us into a completely different personality. Because this guy, who's pretty darn good, he's been a student of the people that he's impersonating. He's mastered their, their facial expressions, just the way they move, in such a way that he can actually take on a different persona. And I think about how much 
fun we have with comedians who are able to do this. Isn't this what Saturday Night Live has made their whole decade upon decade upon decade of, of show around? Is there mastery of impersonating famous people, sometimes just uh, lampooning them, really, but it's what we laugh at. It's what we find entertaining. And I think about the, the people that I grew up watching, Rich Little being one. He was a master at um, imitating Richard Nixon, Johnny Carson, um, uh, Johnny Cash. I mean, some of these old personalities. And it was really kind of a novelty back then. If you're over, if you're under 50, you don't know who I'm talking about. That's okay. If you're over 50, you know. Um, but then in our day, we have, we have Dana Carvey, we have Will Ferrell, we have Tina Fey, we have this whole host of comedians who really master this art of impersonating someone. And the reason I'm talking about this this, this evening is that this is actually what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us that we should study and know God so well that we can be imitators of him in the way we live our lives. That, that when people look at us, they say, oh, she's a Christ follower because look at how much like Jesus she is. Look at the way she loves. Look at the light that emanates from her life. Look at the patterns of her life. What is it about her? It's that she is following God. She's following Jesus. And so that's why Paul is telling us that we actually need to know God really well. We need to study him. We need to know him intimately. We need to know his word. We need to have his spirit. All of these things become a part of how we become imitators of God. And so that's what Paul's going to talk to us about tonight. He's going to tell us that um, we are called to imitate God specifically by walking in love and walking in light. And that's how we're going to look at this passage, Ephesians chapter 5. The first two verses are about walking in love, and then the last set of verses, 3 through 14, are about walking in light. So let's dive in, shall we? It's a big passage full of so much rich truth. So first of all, Paul begins by challenging us, challenging us to love like God. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. An imitator is a mimic. So he's saying, as God's beloved children, we are to imitate or resemble our father. He's already told us, of course, that we are adopted daughters of the king. We already know that we have been born again in Christ. We have this new identity. We've been sealed with his Holy Spirit. We've been given the privilege of calling him Abba, Father, which literally means Daddy. So we are part of his family. And together, sons and daughters, we make up the church. And the calling of the church is to be the light out into the world, to be representative of Christ out into the world as we live out our daily lives. And so how do we do this? Well, we do it by obeying our Heavenly Father. I mean, isn't that what we teach our children? You teach your children to be kind and to have good manners and to speak um, appropriately to other people. And we have all of these ways in which we teach our children so that when they go out into the world, they represent our family well, right? If they're out there being naughty and swearing and, and having you know, mean, cruel behaviors, well, guess what? Who gets the phone call? Mom does. Hey, we got a problem, and it's a reflection on you. So in the same way, the way that we emulate our Heavenly Father is we do what he says, we represent him well. And there's scripture tells us kind of how to do that. In fact, in Luke 6.36, it says, be merciful as your father's merciful. Or in Matthew 4.44, it says, love your enemies. And then he tells us in other passages, um, he says, be hospitable, care for widows and orphans. He says, be kind and forgiving to one another. So the Bible is full of instruction, how we go out and live our lives very practically, rubbing life with 
people all around us in a way that emulates our Heavenly Father. But if we really want to know God, if we really want to understand what it looks like to emulate the Father, we look to the Son. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And that's why we spend so much time looking at Jesus, because when we look at Jesus, we see the Father and we understand the triune God. So that's why in verse 2, Paul then challenges us to love like Jesus. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're beloved not only by God the Father, we're beloved by God the Son. And it's so hard for us to conceive of how much God really loves us. You know, we, we tell each other, God loves you. We read in Scripture, God loves us. But it's really hard to understand this kind of love. And I guess we have the advantage to think about how much we love our children. For those of us who've had the privilege of having children, we can think about that kind of love as just a a shadow of God's love for us. Think about how you would, I'm sure you would, I know I would, step in front of a bullet to save your child, wouldn't you? If you knew that they were in danger, wouldn't you do anything to protect them? I would even do that for my adult sons. And this is how much God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could be welcomed into his heavenly family. Jesus Christ then willingly laid down his life for us so that we could be rescued from the penalty of sin, which we know is doom and despair and disobedience and brought into this relationship with him. And that sacrifice was the Bible tells us, pleasing to God. It was like a fragrant aroma to him because it satisfied the just demands of his holy law. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died in our place so that we could live in relationship with him. And so it seems like our only reasonable response to God for what he's done for us is to love him in return and then to love others the way that he loved us. Isn't that the challenge of love? It's, It's to love him the way he loves us and then to to depend upon his resources to love others the way that he loves us. And why is that so hard? It seems so reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, here you have a God who loves you so much. He's died on a cross so that you never have to die. You never have to be separated from him. He's brought you into fellowship with himself. As we've gone through the book of Ephesians, we've filled our hearts and minds with all of the riches we have in Christ, all that he's done for us. Why is it so hard for us to love sacrificially? Why is it so hard for us to love selflessly? You know, every time I bring a golden retriever home, I'm faced with the pain of love. I have three golden retrievers. I have not gotten a new puppy, but this is a picture of my youngest sweet thing. She's the same dog who two years ago was destroying my furniture. She de-stuffed an ottoman and a couch. So she was the naughty little girl, and now she's the sweet little cherub. But every time I bring a new family member, a new golden retriever into my family, I know that if I'm lucky, I'll have 14 years to love this creature and build a friendship, and then my heart's going to be broken because I'm going to have to say goodbye Today is actually the 12th birthday of my oldest golden retriever, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, then I might have two more years with her. It's heartbreaking to love 
with abandon, to, to bring, whether it be a, a pet or anyone, into your family and to, to, to know that you can be hurt, that this love might be costly. But it's the same is true for our human relationships. We love people knowing that they could and may die and break our hearts. We're vulnerable with people that we love knowing that they may betray us or abandon us. We serve people we love knowing that they might take us for granted or criticize us. But Jesus' love was costly too. And to, to love like Jesus means that we love the way that he loves. We trust our Heavenly Father for the unknowns. And we step out with courage and love without fear and love without, um, about being paralyzed by the pains and losses that might come as a result of it. We're all in in our love, the way that he was all in in his love for us. C.S. Lewis wrote a piece on the vulnerability of love, and I think it's the vulnerability of love that keeps us from really loving each other well. It's so vulnerable to love, isn't it? Listen to what he wrote. I put it on the screen so you could read along with me if you want to watch when I'm, watch the words that I'm speaking. He says that to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable unpenetratable and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Love is risky. Love is costly. Love is vulnerable. Love takes courage. And the only way that we can walk in love like God is with the help of his spirit. It's the only way. And that's the truth that I just want to call out right now. And that is that only the Holy Spirit can enable us to love like God. Before I explain that a little bit more, notice how we have all three persons of the Trinity here. We have God the Father, who has called us his beloved children. We have Jesus, who has loved us with his life, who has laid it down for us so that we can live eternally with him. And then we have the Holy Spirit, who is the one who lives within us, who is constantly testifying to us of this great love that God has for us and making it possible for us to love others like him. The Holy Spirit is is present with us forever. It's God's gift to us when we receive Christ as our Savior. And the Holy Spirit affirms God's love for us and gives us love for other people. Romans 5.5 says this. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the fact that we even know of God's love is because we have his Spirit. Love is the epitome of all virtues. It is at the apex of all of the virtues. I mean, think about this for a minute. We've been looking at like so many of the different types of sins that Paul's calling us to cast out of our lives. And when you think of all of that, How many of these sins are thwarted when we walk in love? If we walk in love, we're not going to steal from each other. We're not going to speak harshly to each other. We're not going to covet each other's spouses. We're not going to become enraged with anger. We won't elevate ourselves above someone else. We won't hurt anyone else. As we look through this list, every single one of these sins of the flesh are dispelled with love 
Because if we really loved the way that God loves us, we wouldn't be doing anything like this to hurt someone else or even to hurt ourselves. So Paul is challenging us to love, to be like God in the way that we love. And you know, there's so many ways in which we can never be like God, right? We can never be omnipresent, although wouldn't that be amazing to just be everywhere at once? That would be awesome. We can't be omnipresent. We can't, we don't have supernatural power like God has. We can't like create something out of nothing like he can. We can't speak a word and it is so. I always even like the Bewitched TV series. You just could go like this and her house was clean. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? We can't do any of those things. But what we, how we can emulate God and imitate God is through um, his characteristics, his personality. We can love like he loves We can be merciful and compassionate and forgiving. There are aspects of him, like we studied in our study last year, that are are attributes that are communicable to us. We can imitate him in these ways. But we need the Spirit's help. We need the Spirit's help to be able to even see people the way he sees them, to have compassion on people, to care for them the way that he cares for them. We need his help even to forgive people the way that he forgives them. God's love is a kind of love that sacrifices for the sake of another, even when that person is unlovely. Isn't it hard to love the unlovely people? I think about love and I think, oh yeah, I can love my boys, I can love my husband, I can love my family, but you know, the unlovely people, oh, do I have to love those people? I think about, um, though, how God loved us when we were unlovely. In Romans 5.8 it says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't love us when we were loving him. He loved us first, and then we loved him. And I think often we think of love as being something very passive. You know, we think, oh, that love is something that is very sweet and is very tender and is very gentle and is very kind. We think of loving someone as like turning the other cheek and looking the other way. We think of it as something very passive. But love, Jesus' love was not a passive love. Jesus' love was an active love. He made a choice to give himself up for us. And he instructs us to make choices to love intentionally other people. Look at John 15, verses 12 through 14. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, You are my friends if you do what I command you. So laying ourselves down for others is the ultimate demonstration of love. How do you love other people sacrificially? How do you lay yourself down for others, the lovely and the unlovely? Thinking about being a mom, I think about how, you know, when you're pregnant, for nine months, you kind of lay your life down because this baby's growing inside of you and you're fat and you don't feel well and it sort of takes yourself, takes over. And I feel like that's how God gets us ready to learn to be in the school of love. We are completely taken over with this creature, which ends up being a child. And then those early years of being a mom, you know, there's the sleepless nights. There's, you know, you give up everything, all your comforts, your sleep. Um, You give up your body again sometimes, you know, when you get older, you pay the consequences of that. But, um, you know, you just, you do, but it doesn't matter. When your child is sick, you're at their bedside. You don't leave their side until they're well. You give everything you have to them. You know, you think nothing of sacrificing in some of these ways. And that's, I think that's how God begins to really teach us selfless love is through giving life to another child. 
But what about your husband? Do you love your husband selflessly the way that you love your child? Why is it harder to love our husbands in the same way? Why is it harder to love sacrificially? Do you know your husband's love language? Do you know if it's words of affirmation or hugs or gifts or um, all kinds of those different love languages that encourage acts of kindness, service? What is it? Do you, do you choose, choose to love him if you have a husband um, in a way that blesses him just to honor and glorify God, just to pour out the kind of love on him that God's poured out on you, not for any other reason? Who needs this kind of love from you? Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe you're working all day long side by side with someone that needs this kind of love from you. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone that you're serving with in ministry. Maybe it's um, a family member, an extended family member. What choices, what choices could you make today to express love to someone sacrificially, selflessly, the way that God has loved you? Can you think of someone who needs this kind of love that would bless their lives? Well, let's talk now about walking in light. Because Paul is next going to challenge us to walk in light instead of the darkness of sin. At one time, before we came to faith in Christ, our lives were characterized as darkness. And now we're living in the light of light, life. If you have come to faith in Christ, you are in the light of life. And so in the light of the Lord. So he's telling us, he's speaking to believers. And so he's saying, look, you must walk as children of light, not of darkness anymore. And so he's going to tell us, how do we do this? And he's going to give us three exhortations. And I'm spend a lot of time on the first one and then not so much time on the next two, but I'll just point them out to you so you know. But the first exhortation he makes is that if you are a child of God, you must worship God, you must exalt God and not exalt idols. It's important as believers that we only worship God and that we don't worship the saviors of our world, the little s saviors of our world. These activities of, of idol worship, they erupt out of a hard heart and they displace the worship of God with the worship of self, really. The greatest idol we have is self. And so he's going to talk to us about that in verses 3 through 6. This is what he says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So actually he mentions three idols in this passage, and the first idol he mentions is sexual immorality or impurity. Sexual immorality, that word in the Greek is porneia. Sound familiar? It's the word that we get pornography from. And it actually refers to um, any kind of sexual sin, even including sexual lustful thoughts. So Paul is understanding that sexual sin is a characteristic of darkness. It's part of the darkness of our lives. Interestingly, when he was speaking to this culture in ancient Ephesus, 
ancient Ephesus was so much like modern-day America. In ancient Ephesus, sexual immorality was prevalent, all kinds of sexual immorality. Do you remember they had the temple there where they worshipped the goddess Diana? So they worshipped a female goddess. The way they worshipped her was um, having sex with prostitutes. It was very, it was a sexual worship. And so their whole culture was built around this climate. And so um, Paul understands that this is a huge part of their culture. He's, he's speaking very counterculturally when he's talking about sexual immorality, just the way I am right now, speaking about it in our own culture, because we have a similar culture that embraces all kinds of sexuality. And so um, we're very similar in, in how we have, have um, developed in our cultures in this way. But thankfully, he's saying, children of light believers like you and me, we actually have the power to break free of strongholds. This is the world in which we live. This is the world that grooms us. Most of us come to faith in Christ with a very dark sexual past of some kind. It's very common because this is the, this is the music we've listened to. These are the music movies that we've seen. This is, this is how we're influenced. And so when we come to Christ, many of us as women come with some sort of a sexual past. This is part of our culture. This is what God has called us out of. And he's saying, but you're children of the light now. You're believers. You don't have to live this life anymore. He tells us, actually, you have the power to flee this kind of life. He says in in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or her own body. So sexual sin is actually a form of of self-worship. It's actually idolatry. It's the result of not honoring God and what he says about our bodies, but rather worshiping the desires of self. I choose what's right for me. I don't follow what God says is right for me. Now, God is, he is the one who created sex. It was his invention. And it was created as a, as a beautiful expression of intimacy between two people within the covenant of marriage. But I'm afraid that today many people have traded in the marriage bed for all kinds of sexual immorality beginning with pornography, so readily accessible on our TVs and our phones and our computers. I hear many couples share with me that the wife is going to bed early and the husband is staying up late, viewing things on his computer, and the sexual energy is dissipated in the marriage. It could be reversed. The number one largest growing population of pornography viewers are women. So it goes both ways, I know. But I feel like there's so many instances where the marriage intimacy in the bedroom is being traded out for other things. Of course, too, we have apps on our phones where at any moment of the day you can schedule a hookup and be out hooking up with a stranger and having a sexual encounter. I mean, our culture is rampant in this way, and it's destroying the intimacy of marriage. Where is there darkness creeping into your sexual life? Where is there darkness creeping in? Could it be in what you're watching Could it be in what you're reading? Could it be in your thought life? Could it be in what you're doing? And how might you choose to walk more boldly in the light as a child of the light? That's your old life. It's your old life. And if you have had a very sexually promiscuous old life, you're going to have to be really strong to combat it because it's got a a hook in you. You're going to have to work really hard at this. I have a family of men. And 
pornography was something that my husband and I had to work through because it was something that he was giving himself to for a season of our life. And he talks about it as awakening the dragon. It's like when I would turn something on TV that had a sexual scene, maybe it was just a really subtle scene. It wasn't like soft porn. It was just, you know, you watch stuff and stuff happens and you're like, oh. He would tell me that wakes up the dragon in me. And in, in a sense that it tapped into his sin that he had put to sleep. And so it's something that we have to be very vigilant over. We have to be very careful. And with having three men in my family, I am so careful not to turn on anything on the TV that hints of sexuality because I know that the, all three of them have dragons that are, of the sin is like a dragon that can be awakened with the smallest little provocation. And the same is true for us. It might be a romance. It might be something else. But we have to be so aware of our sin in this area that we are vigilant to watch over our own hearts. We have to be careful because everything in the world is trying to trip us up and, and make us act out in ways that are worldly. So how might you walk more boldly in the light? By focusing on your marital intimacy. That's what marriage is for. Focus on that. Intentionally guard your eyes. Guard your mind. Um, focus your sexual energy where it belongs. The second thing is covetousness and greed. And you might think, well, why are we talking about that on the heels of sexual intimacy? It's because they, they both are sins that are the result of an uncontrolled appetite. One is derived from the lust of the flesh, and the other is derived from the lust of the eyes. But both sins want to take something that doesn't belong to them. Greed is this insatiable desire for more. It originates in the heart. And it's this, the desire was identified in the Ten Commandments when in the Tenth Commandment, God said, thou shalt not covet your wife or your wife or your neighbor's wife. But then also, greed is also breaking the first commandment, which is worshiping something other than God. Because greed wants us to have something. And it's saying that God isn't enough. What he's given us isn't enough. Greed is really sneaky because, you know, one minute you're content and then the next minute you're like wanting for something. And we are bombarded, aren't we, all day long with messages of wanting. You know, we want this, we want that, we want this. We just, there's so much coming at us to our eyes and our ears and our minds that are designed specifically to awaken in us a desire for something more than what we have. That's how companies make money, right? You might work for marketing companies and you're, you know this very well. So the thing, though, is that most people don't see greed as their besetting sin. Most people don't think that greed is, you know, they look at their lives and they don't think greed is at the top. But often that's because they have so much, we have so much, and we don't realize that the reason we have so much is maybe because there's been some greed that's been helping us to accumulate so much. We live in such a materialistic culture that greed is just like the air we breathe. And we don't even understand that until we go to Africa or until we go to a third world country and we see people living in contentment in their small little huts with their simple meals every day and their sweet family relationships. And we see the joy and we realize they have nothing compared to us, but there's this contentment in them and we realize we are so blinded by how much we have and how much time and energy it takes to care for what we have, right? Because everything we have requires care, money to repair, time to dispose of, 
to put in place, to organize, and our lives are so burdened by stuff, and I'm in this with you, our lives are so burdened by, with stuff that we don't even understand how upside down our world is compared to this world and to compared to most worlds across the globe. Think of all the greed that was exposed in the mortgage banking scandal of 2008. It was just one curtain of one industry pulled back, and it was like, wow, that's going on? It's shocking. Well, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, For as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So where are your riches? It's, it's not even about looking at your home or your cars or your stuff, but look at your heart. Are your riches in Christ? Are your riches in your relationship with the Lord? Or are your riches in your security that you've built for yourself in your retirement plan or in your assets? Are you content with what you have? Or are you pining for more? Is there discontentment in your heart? And you feel that God hasn't really given you what you wanted. The love of money is a characteristic of those who live in darkness, as spoken of in 1 Timothy 6.10. But for children of light, money is a tool. Money is the blessing of work. We work hard. We get money. That's um, the blessing of work. And then with that money, we get to put it to good use. We actually allow money to serve us while we serve and worship our God. It's a tool in life to be used appropriately. The next one is corrupt speech, and in verse 4, Paul warns about the sin of the tongue, which flows out of a hard and sinful heart. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Have you ever noticed that when a person comes to faith in Christ, the very first thing that seems to change is their language? I've had women, sweetest, most wonderful women say, I swore like a truck driver before I became a Christian. You never would imagine that when you, when you know them, but it's so true. Or even flippantly using God's name in vain is something that um, we could do habitually. And then when we really grow up and mature in Christ, we realize like we actually probably shouldn't be using that kind of language. And so it, it's true that when, when God softens our hearts, it reflects in how we speak. It reflects in how we think, and then how we think flows out into the way we speak to each other. But what about humor? You know, it's been said that... Um, the test of a person's character is what makes us laugh and what makes us weep. Humor is good, isn't it? We love to laugh. We love um, witty things that make us, you know, giggle, that, that bring joy to our lives. Paul's not telling us to be serious all the time. He's not telling us not to laugh. It's good to laugh. But he just warns us to not use, to not be vulgar with our humor. He's like, that's the old life. The old life is you told dirty jokes. You were crude with your humor. The new life is you enjoy good humor, uplifting humor. Um, but in, through it all, he says you should be speaking words of gratitude. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So notice that he didn't just say, don't be vulgar, don't be filthy, don't be corrupt. He said, don't do those things. Those are the old self. Take those patterns of behavior off. But don't just leave a void that's going to be filled with anything that comes into your mind. Actually fill it with thanksgiving. Put thanksgiving in its place. Thanksgiving, they say, is the antidote to sin. Did you realize that? They say that it's impossible to praise and worship God and simultaneously sin. I think they're right. 
I can't imagine choosing to willfully sin while I'm praising and thanking God. At least if it was a sin, it was a sin I wasn't conscious of. So thanksgiving is really powerful. Gratitude and thanksgiving is an expression of worship. When we're singing worship songs, we're singing praises of thanksgiving to God. When we pray, we begin by praising him and thanking him and then bringing our requests to him. And that praising and thanksgiving piece just changes everything. It reorients everything in our hearts because we remember who he is, remember what he's done, and then we bring our requests to him in faith. So these three characteristics, sexual immorality, greed, and corrupt speech, they're all rooted in self. All three exalt self over God, and they all three express a discontentment with the way that God has ordered our lives. And so that's why Paul is warning us that if we persist in this lifestyle, if this lifestyle is a pattern of our lives that is persisting, he's saying we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not saying that we won't occasionally succumb to darkness. We won't occasionally dabble in these things. We are sinful, fallen creatures, as we know. We have seasons in our life where we're dabbling in darkness again. You know, we know that, on, that the life of faith is a journey, and it takes a lifetime. And there are times when we are really growing, and we're worshiping, and we're in Bible study, and we're applying the truths to our lives, and everything is sweet. And then there are times when life is really hard and we get discouraged and we go and we want to put on the old self again, right? We want to return to our past behaviors. We want to return. Our hearts get crusty. We get disenchanted with life. Our language starts to get foul. We start to, to watch Netflix to escape from things and we watch things we shouldn't. And we start to go down this trail of dabbling in darkness. And what Paul is saying is that in those times when you're a Christian and you're dabbling in darkness, the Spirit's going to call you back, right? We know that how the, the Holy Spirit is like, uh, 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 that's not who you are. That's not your identity. Return to me. Repent. Come back to me. Let me forgive you and restore you. So that's the normal pattern of a Christian is that we, we, might, we might sin and we might slip up and we might need forgiveness and we might dabble at times and then we repent and we return to him and we receive forgiveness. But for a, a person who's able to persist in that darkness, a person who's able to choose time and time again not to repent, not to return, he's saying that person will not inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. And the reason that he says that is because we have to look at the passage in its whole. Remember Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he's been telling us this is who we are in Christ. These are our riches in Christ. We are adopted and redeemed and forgiven, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the mysteries of the kingdom revealed. He's given us this whole list, and now he's telling us how to live this out. So he's saying, if your life is completely characterized by darkness, and there's no repentance and returning to me, then obviously you're not in Christ. You obviously haven't received the riches of Christ. That's not your identity. And so your, your behaviors are mimicking your identity, which is not an in-Christ identity. But for the believer who occasionally stumbles, trips, dabbles in darkness, he will call us back to himself. He will call us to repentance. He will grow us up in our faith. And that's spoken of in, it's a reminder in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, we have been cleansed by Christ, and we're being sanctified by him. And so he is partnering with us in the Holy Spirit's power to grow us up in our faith. And he does that by 
teaching us his word, by forgiving us, by calling us back, by tapping us on the shoulder, the Holy Spirit is working to convict us and bring us into a growing, vibrant relationship with Christ. I love that David is kind of a, a, an Old Testament example of this because David in the Bible, he is a man after God's own heart. His reputation is one of our heroes of the faith, and yet David had some big sins. He got involved in an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and then he conspired to murder her husband. I don't know that any of us here have been guilty of both of those sins. And then he repented, and God forgave him, and so and restored him. He was disciplined. Actually, he was disciplined. But he walked, he turned back, and that was just evidence that he belonged to God all along, he repented and was restored and ended up being a mighty hero of the faith. So the only way that we can repent of our idols and begin to worship God is with the Holy Spirit's help. We can't do it in our own strength. And though we'll never be sinless, we should be sinning less as we mature. Over the course of our lives, we should look at the pattern of our lives and we should be able to see how we repented and turned from sin as a regular pattern, over and over again, and we're growing in faith, and our sins should be changing. Oftentimes in our younger years of maturity, our sins are very outward. They're things we do. As we mature in Christ, they become more inward. They become more refinements of the heart and attitudes, and so we have a change over time, and we begin to, to never be sinless, but we begin to sin less, and that's a good thing. So in which of these areas do you really need the Holy Spirit's help? Sexual immorality, greed, covetousness, or what comes out of your mouth? The antidote is a renewed mind that is full of thanksgiving and praise to God. These next two things I'm going to go through very quickly just to give you an overview and warm you up to your discussion. Um, The second exhortation that Paul gives in verses 7 through 10 is to exhibit the fruit of light. And he says, therefore, don't become partners with unbelievers. Um, So don't become partners with darkness. If you're going to be salt and light, then you need to be careful not to be entangled with someone who is deeply in sin and darkness. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. At one time you were an unbeliever, but now you're a believer. One time you were darkness, and now you're a child of the light. So your, your life should be obviously different to the people that are around you. He says, um, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right. So he's saying, do good, bear good fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is an example of that. Um, Jesus talks a lot about light and darkness. Um, He says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So the way that we, well, as Paul's been saying, we have to behave as we believe. And the way that we behave out in the world as we're living our lives really, really matters. And people are watching. And they're learning from us who Jesus is by how we interact with our lives. And so that's the good fruit of doing what's good and right and true. And then he says, and try, not, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, um, listen to the Spirit guide you, follow the Word, live your life in a way that pleases the Lord. So that's number two. And then number three, he says, expose darkness. Not only are we not to walk in darkness personally, 
But our lives actually expose darkness. Our lives expose the darkness of sin in the lives of unbelievers. So as you're in a family with unbelievers, as you're in a neighborhood or a work situation, your life, the light of your life, actually exposes sin in other people's lives. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. This can happen just naturally as we're shoulder to shoulder with people all day long. And as we speak a word of wisdom or a word of grace or a word of truth, or we express love and care for the people around us, or as we radiate a kind of inner peace, a kind of contentment that comes from from God, our lives because they're different, because the way we live matters, can expose the breaking hearts of the people around us. The, the sin that entangles, the strongholds, can come to light in unbelievers in such a way that, that exposes them to Christ. And then um, sometimes that light can change unbelievers into believers. It can make everything clear to someone, because the light of Christ in us can expose darkness in others in such a way that it brings them to saving faith. So Paul ends by saying, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine light on you. Does that sound like a song we just sang? Love that song that our pastor Eric wrote. But you know what? I read this passage, and I thought, isn't that the message of Easter? Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is the essence of what it means to be light. We were in darkness. We believed in Christ, who went to the grave, was risen from the dead, and gives his light to shine on us. And as we go out in the world and we live out our lives, we are shining that light on others and inviting them to recognize that they too are dead, that they too can rise up in in new life in Christ and shine out on others. It's, It's the story of Easter. I want to ask you, is there someone in your life who's in darkness that you could invite to an Easter service? Or you could share the message of Easter. You could explain what Easter is about. You can tell your own story of how you have come from darkness to light or how you're in the struggle. Because the truth is that our lives have been changed from darkness to light. They've been changed. And light is, is evangelistic in its power. The light of one soul can make another soul light because this is how it looks like when we're living out the reality of our life in Christ and being transparent and being vulnerable and loving well and walking in love, that light becomes a beacon for others to see. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this radical transformation has already taken place in your soul. And that's why Paul is challenging us so hard. He's saying, you got to live this out. You know these things to be true about Christ and your identity in Christ, and it really matters how we live. It really matters. It matters that we're consistent and that we're transparent. Um, So we we need to renew our minds on the truth of Jesus because we're never going to drift into holiness. We're not going to wake up one day and just say, oh, I've got this whole Christian life thing down now. I, I, I got it. You know, it, it doesn't happen when we're sleeping, right? It happens when we're active, when we're, we're working to know the, the, the Word of God. We're living in authentic community with each other. We're sharing our needs with each other in prayer, living vulnerably with each other, 
loving each other well, caring for each other's needs, um, participating with the Holy Spirit in the sanctification by consciously putting off the old and putting on the new, consciously renouncing the sins of our past and putting in their place the, the virtues of Christ. So let me just, I want to just share four really quick takeaways that, that I received from this passage, just ways in which I think we can live this out. This is how I think we can live, walk worthy of the calling, to walk in love and in light. First is um, we need to make an effort to eradicate sinful behaviors in our lives. Um, They don't just go away. They have hooks, and they have a story, and they've come from the past. And when we recognize them, Praise and thank God that the Holy Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder and spotlighted something in you that need, you need to repent of. And then we need to eradicate that. We need to work hard at that. We work hard at so many things. We work hard at diet and exercise and our jobs, and we have all these things that we apply ourselves to, but we need to work hard at eradicating sin in our lives. We need to choose to repent and to fill our minds with, with God's word and God's truth. The second thing is that we, we, need, we need to deliberately replace the old lifestyle practices with new ones that are consistent with our new identity. And sometimes that means making really hard choices. Sometimes that means choosing to do something different on your Friday night than hanging out with your friends in a bar or, you know, whatever, you, you know, whatever it is that trips you up, whatever it is that, that, that taps into your old self. It's different. Um, I will say that when my husband and I were first married, he loved to go dancing, and he always wanted to go dancing. And for me, dancing in bars in college was like a sinful thing for me. It was, it, it was part of my old life. And for him, it never was. So for him, it was pure, and it was fun. But for me, it tapped into my life of living for myself. And so I had to say, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. It's not that that is a bad thing. It's just that for me, it brings me back to my old self. And so think about that for yourself. Change your patterns of behavior if you need to. Choose different activities. Choose different friends if you need to. Think ahead and plan to replace old patterns with new ones and actively work to reprogram your thinking where you need to. The third thing is don't isolate from the world. We are meant to live shoulder to shoulder with other people, unbelievers and believers. It does the world no good if we isolate. Our job is not to pull away and be afraid. Our job is to step in and confidently stand on the truth and the beauty of God's word and his character. We can radiate Christ in every relationship, and we are to be actively countercultural. We are to be actively countercultural. You know, Jesus, the, the Bible is offensive. It was offensive in Ephesus, and it's offensive today, and it's okay. We know it's God's truth, and it's a better way of living. It's true. And so we, we don't need to shy away from that. We just get to live our lives. We don't need to pre- always preach it. We certainly don't ever want to be judgmental, but we want to just live confidently in the joy and the light of Christ and let him do the work of convicting other people's hearts. We get to be a sphere of influence right where we're planted. And then lastly, We need to encourage each other by truly modeling a godly lifestyle to each other. To really try hard, um, participating with God's spirit, um, our will and his spirit together, to grow up in our faith, to be sanctified, 
to live out what we believe to be true in our everyday lives. And when we see each other starting to tiptoe into darkness, starting to compromise, starting to be tempted by the schemes of the devil or the lures of the flesh, when we see each other starting to go down that road, we need to be able to be bold and speak truth to each other, to call each other back, to remind each other of God's word, to pray for each other, to not just be passive and let that sister or that brother just go over the edge, but to be actively participating with God, to maintain health in the body of Christ. We have a responsibility to care for each other in community, and we need to wake each other up when one of us begins to drift asleep. It's so important. So that's the Christian life. We are mandated by God to actually live out what we believe. I mean, we're, what good is it to believe something if we don't live like it? We are called to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, and it takes a lot of effort, and it takes a, lot, it takes a lifetime, and it takes a lot of grace, and a lot of forgiveness, a lot of love, a lot of truth. But it's a better life to actually live out what we know to be true and to live out this identity that we have in Christ. And the joy is we get to do it together. And one of the best ways that we strengthen each other is to come every week and be in his word and be encouraged and be strengthened and then to go out and do it again for another week. And so it's a better life and it really matters. So let me pray for us and then you're going to go straight to your discussion groups. Father, I just am so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that you tell us so specifically how to live. You're giving us so many practical applications. And um, Lord, we just confess that our thinking is really upside down. We live in a world that teaches us just about the opposite of everything that we've just spoken of tonight. But we know, Lord, that your word is truth you're the one who created us. You have a better way for us to live than the ways we choose when we worship ourselves and we put ourselves in the center of everything. Lord, it's so much better when we worship you and we do what you say. Help us, Lord. We desperately need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit to remind us and to call us to repentance when we go off course. We need your grace, even just to forgive ourselves when we make mistakes. We need your love to love each other really well, sacrificially, Love ourselves even, Lord. We sometimes get caught up in the regrets. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be healthy, radiant, godly women who, who our very lives uh, make a difference in this world. Lord, we really want to make a difference. And so would you help us? Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.